This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. There's nothing more stylish than taking great care of our pets. So today, we're really fortunate to have as a guest, Dr. Judy Morgan, an integrated veterinarian who will share with us tips on helping our pets live longer, healthier lives. Now, for those of you who don't know, I'm really passionate about sharing information about natural healing. It's something that I've loved for a long time and also how to avoid harmful pharmaceuticals when we can and take back some control of our pet's health. So today we're going to learn a little bit more to empower us to do that from Dr. Judy Morgan. You're listening to Bark and Swagger on Pet Life Radio, and I'm Jody Miller-Young, your host. We're going to take a short break from our sponsor, but when we come back, we're going to find out what the most important things to know are to have a healthier pet. So grab that favorite beverage, get comfortable, and we'll be right back. How many of you have pets? My hand's raised. Now think about how lucky you are to have such a sweet little pet in your life, and that pet is lucky to have you too. But unfortunately, there are countless pets out there that don't have a home to call their own. However, Bob's from Skechers is trying to change that. So we developed Bob's for dogs and cats to help pets in need. With every purchase of adorable Bob's footwear or fun, stylish apparel, or even the cutest Bob's pet accessories, Skechers makes a donation to Petco Love to help save shelter pets. And with your help, we've already saved the lives of over 1 million pets and raised over $7 million. So while you're getting style and comfort with features like Skechers' famous memory foam cushioning, you're also helping to save an adorable pet in need and helping another lucky owner be connected with a future best friend and companion because happiness is having a loving pet by your side. Find Bob's at a Skechers store, Skechers.com, select pet co-locations, or wherever stylish footwear is sold. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. If you've just joined, you're listening to Bark and Swagger on Pet Life Radio, and I'm Jody Miller-Young. Dr. Judy Morgan is one of the preeminent holistic or integrated vets in the country. So when I say I'm excited to talk with her today, that's real. She was voted 2018 Woman of the Year in the pet industry, 2019 Pet Age Woman of Influence, 2019 International Association of Top Professionals Veterinarian of the Year, and 2020 Woman of Influence. So Dr. Judy Morgan is the real deal, and she's been doing this for a long time. She's an internationally renowned speaker, best-selling author of four books on holistic pet care and dog nutrition. So let's not waste any more time in welcoming her to the show. Hi, Dr. Judy. Hi, thanks for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy you're here and really excited that we're going to get to share some wonderful information to empower our pet parents. So like many holistic vets, you didn't actually start off that way. Tell us how you came to natural healing. Uh, 
Well, it's not taught in veterinary schools around the country. I can tell you that there are a few that are starting to dabble a little bit. And um, the veterinary college in Florida actually has a traditional Chinese veterinary medicine cycle that the students get to go through. So they're, they're getting a little bit more exposure than they used to. But I went to school in the Midwest in the 1980s. Talk about traditional. We did not talk about anything outside the box. And um, after about 10 years in practice, I accidentally took a chiropractic course. And I say accidentally because I didn't yeah. know that it was a chiropractic course. <laughs> it was labeled as um, be something to help us uh, help our patients heal after surgery, particularly after orthopedic surgery. And I thought, well, okay, another tool in the toolbox. I didn't do orthopedic surgery, but my partner did. And I thought, well, this is great. I'm, I'm not contributing to that surgery, but I could contribute to the rehab of those animals. And, and I had an interest in rehab and that was kind of before physical therapy became big. Um, so I thought, well, maybe this would, would play into that. And I got to the course and I, I got lost. So I was a little late getting in. So I missed the intro, sat down and a couple of hours in, I kind of had this look on my face and I said, I think this guy's talking about chiropractic. I don't really even believe in that. Why am I here? And we paid for it. So that's why I was there and I stuck it out. And when I went back to work after finishing the course, um, the very first patient in the door was carried in. I used what I had learned during the course and the dog got up and ran out of the office. And wow. Yeah. And it was a 95 pound shepherd. So uh, I kind of looked at my technician and I said, what did you do to that dog? And they're like, we didn't do anything. You did something. And I'm like, yeah, but I didn't <laughs> think it worked like that. Uh, so it was, it was eye-opening and sort of rocked my world a little bit because then I felt bad about all the animals that I hadn't had that tool in my toolbox and that we had, had put down because they couldn't walk or whatever. And that just started, that opened the floodgates. And I just started investigating every alternative modality I could find. And what really stuck for me was traditional Chinese veterinary medicine. When I, when I got to that point in all the things I had uh, looked at, I realized, ooh, this is the one that's calling to me. And when I got to the food therapy part of that, that was when I, most holistic practitioners, if you ask them, they will all have a specialty. That one thing that really calls to them, whether it's essential oils or food or herbs or chiropractic or acupuncture or raindrop therapy, color therapy, whatever it is, we will gravitate toward that one thing that we just, we know that that's what we were made to do. Yeah, it sounds like the universe aligned when you marched into that chiropractic course, not knowing what you were, you know, getting clueless. yourself into. <laughs> Absolutely clueless. <laughs> and it just goes to show all the things you've mentioned, how many avenues there are for pet parents to explore that many pet parents aren't aware of exactly. to heal their babies. So that's wonderful to put out there. Nutrition a cornerstone, right, of good health, whether it's for us or for our pets. What, in your view, are the pillars of that, of good nutrition? For our pets, actually even for horses, um, 
you know, pocket pets, whatever. It's feeding them what is species appropriate for that particular animal. So if you have guinea pigs, hamsters, rabbits, gerbils, yes, they are going to eat a, a grain and vegetable based diet. Horses, they're herbivores, that's what they eat plants. Our cats are obligate carnivores. They really need to be metasauruses. In our dogs, there's a big uh, debate. Are they omnivores? Are they carnivores? They're not obligate carnivores because they can survive on um, a vegetarian diet. They do not thrive. I do not recommend it at all. Uh, and I, I, I would recommend that people that want to have vegetarian pets purchase an herbivore uh, because <laughs> that's what is supposed to eat that diet. Um, I think it's very important that we feed them fresh, whole foods, human-grade food, uh, because the pet-grade feed that is available in highly processed foods is not good nutrition, and we don't get the best health and longevity out of our pets when all we are feeding is highly processed food. The same goes for people. If the only thing that you ever eat comes out of a bag, box, or can that has a ton of preservatives as a, a shelf life of 10 years, you're not going to have good nutrition. If everything is filled with salt, sugar, and preservatives and uh, chemical additives, that's not going to give us the good health that we want. That is not going to get our dogs and cats to live two and a half decades. If we want two and a half decades from them, we need to supply good fuel. And that good fuel is going to be fresh, human grade meats, vegetables, uh, whatever it is that is appropriate for that specific species. Yeah. I mean, what I've heard said is to feed, let's say, kibble for every meal ongoing is like for us going to McDonald's for every meal ongoing. It's like fast food for our pets. And you know, anybody who has seen any of these films about people that gorge themselves on McDonald's and what happens to their health over the course of a very short period of time can imagine what can happen in the bodies of their pets too, right? Absolutely. And one of the things that people, it's a myth that has been perpetuated by veterinarians and the pet food industry for decades is that you should never change your pet's diet, that you should put that same dry kibble in the bowl twice a day or however often you feed. Some people free feed. I don't know how they do that. My dogs would gorge themselves and pop. But although actually, I don't think if I put kibble on a bowl, I don't think my dogs would even touch it because they don't eat that. It's foreign to them. But when you feed the same exact thing day in and day out, if there is an excess of a vitamin or mineral, if there's a deficiency of a vitamin or mineral or amino acid, you are perpetuating that. If there is something toxic in that food, for instance, rendered food, which is when they take all the leftover parts and pieces that are not human edible, it goes into a huge melting pot and it's all cooked down. And then the fat rises and they pull that off and they use that as a appetite enhancer. The rendered product is then dehydrated and made into a meal. It's, it's not a pretty thing. Uh, it smells really bad. Uh, but one of the problems is the head of the biggest rendering association in the country at one of the uh, feed control official meetings gave a speech where he said it is just about impossible 
to have a rendered product that does not contain euthanasia solution, pentobarbital. Now, they look at it and say, well, that's fine because it's in a little tiny amount in there. It's just a little bit. Well, if you're feeding your pet that same thing in the bowl day in and day out, every day he's getting just a little bit of euthanasia solution, just a little bit twice a day, every day for 10 years, their liver is going to fail. Their kidney is going to fail. And we actually discovered that back in the 90s because there came a period of time when veterinarians were having a very hard time euthanizing animals. We would give them a, the dose of euthanasia solution that was prescribed, they wouldn't die. We'd have okay. to double and triple our doses. And the reason was because their body had been Resistant. exposed to it so much that their liver figured out how to process it. And that was pretty eye-opening. The FDA yeah. actually put out a statement about it, but nothing has changed over the years. That's the sad part. And also, it's not only a little bit. Sometimes you're reading about these recalls of pets who have died from being given something they'd never eaten before as a special meal that had the pentobarbital or whatever it's called yes. in amounts that literally killed the animal. Never on the spot. Yes, there's a, a big lawsuit still on yes. that right now, actually. Yes, yes. You mentioned traditional Chinese medicine as your sort of Mojo. Tell us a little bit more about how that works. What do you look for to diagnose when you're diagnosing around traditional Chinese veterinary medicine? It's a little bit different. And I think that a lot of the holistic modalities uh, really align with it. Uh, for instance, homeopathy really kind of aligns in that we use all of our senses. So I actually, I, I cracked my skull and I lost my sense of smell for about a year, smell and taste. Really wow. awful because sense of smell is huge when I'm doing an exam on an animal. People kind of look at me funny when I'm examining their animal, but I get the otoscope and I look down in the ear, but then I stick my nose in the ear because I want to see what that smells like. And my nose when it's working is very good. I can pick out a pseudomonas bacteria without a culture. It has a very distinct smell. I can pick out yeast. We use our sense of smell. We use our sense of touch. The sense of touch in Chinese medicine, we, we feel pulses a lot. Uh, so in people, we generally do it on the wrist. In the dogs and cats, we do it inside the back legs. Horses, we do it in the neck. And different positions along the pulse, the strength, whether it's round or flat or full, we have a lot of descriptive terms. That gives us a lot of information and how it changes along the course of that vein that we're feeling or artery that we're feeling gives us a lot of information as well. We look at the tongue. You can diagnose an entire disease wealth of information just by looking at the tongue. Here's a little tip for anybody who's listening and is kind of thinks I'm a little bit crazy, but it works for people as well. This started, traditional Chinese medicine started in people and then uh, we started using it in animals. If your tongue, if you think you're getting sick, but you're not really sure, get up in the morning, go in your bathroom, turn on the light, stick your tongue out in the mirror. If it has a yellow hue, you are getting sick. Probably should call out from work. Uh, but that yellow hue means that there's heat and fever in there. Um, so we'll look at the tongue. We also want to look at what we call the shen, which is the demeanor of the animal. Are they interested in their surroundings? Do they know what's going on? Do they care about who's coming in and out of the room? Are they acting aggressively? Are they pulling back and being shy? Is their shen dull? Like they really just don't feel well or they have a headache. 
So we look at all the parts of the body. We palpate, you know, I'm going to palpate the abdomen. I'm going to listen to the heart. I'm going to do the things that a normal traditional practitioner would do. But if I asked a traditional practitioner, well, what did this pulse feel like? They'd say, oh, it was strong and synchronous. That's about the only words they have. And if I asked them about the tongue, I would get it's pink. <laughs> but there are many hues of lavender, red, pink, gray. Is the tongue thick? Is it thin? Does it have dents along the side? Does it, what kind of coating does it have on it? Does it have no coating? Is it dry? Is it wet? Tons and tons of information. So we use just all, all of our senses and we put all of that information together. When I am questioning the person, I'm asking, does your dog sleep or cat sleep under the covers, curled up? Does he snuggle next to you? Is he sprawled out on the cold tile floor? Does he pant all the time? Does he drink a lot? Does he drink a little? All of those clues are going to help us with our diagnostics and also with our therapies. So, so aligned with homeopathy. We do the same thing. Yeah, a lot yeah. of questions. A lot of questions. Yes, yes. I mean, an intake, case taking, initial an hour and a half, yeah. you know, and that's kind of very standard. Yes. Really, really interesting. And for anyone listening, um, if you are not familiar with these complementary healing modalities, just think about how individual your pet is and their personality, the way they express themselves. It's the same thing with the way they express illness or disease. And these types of things allow an expert to differentiate between how your dog or cat or other animal is expressing that illness and another one would be. Even if they both have diarrhea and vomiting, or even if they both have, you know, like uh, lameness, whatever it might be. Yeah. Exactly. I, for instance, in my yin and yang nutrition for dogs book, I've got a recipe for hot diarrhea and a recipe for cold diarrhea. Most Perfect. people just say he's got diarrhea. Well, you, yeah. treat, them, you treat them very differently. <laughs> Absolutely. Really, really interesting. Now, this is kind of a hot button in that it's very controversial topic to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. It's fraught with fear on the part of pet parents, both from the potential of exposure to the law. So what can you add to this conversation from your experience to kind of help pet parents feel a little less anxious and know a bit more about vaccines and our pets' bodies and what happens? Very interesting. I retired from clinical practice last November and I moved from New Jersey to North Carolina. So I had to find, believe it or not, I had to find a veterinarian for my animals after I moved. And I thought, well, okay, my daughter's lived here for five years. She has yet to find a veterinarian that does anything integrated. And there's no way I can walk into a regular veterinary clinic or hand my animal over to a regular clinic where they're going to hand him back and say, oh, wow, we had him. We gave him these 15 vaccines, which would make my head spin. So I found a house call veterinarian and she is from, she's Eastern European. So she and I have had some great conversations. I had her come out just to draw blood from the dogs. I needed some blood work done. And so we got into a discussion about vaccines and she said, I just don't. And I asked her if she did titers, which is a blood test that tells you whether your animal has protection, whether they even need another vaccine. I said, do you do those in your practice? And she said, not normally. And I said, oh, do you just vaccinate everybody? She said, no. <laughs> I said, really? Like everybody else is saying they have to be vaccinated. She said, no, in Eastern Europe area where she's from, 
they give the puppy or kitten vaccines and they very minimally vaccinate the puppy or kitten. I see records from puppies that have had a series of seven puppy vaccines and each time they get them, they're getting 10 at a time, which makes, again, oh my, my God, spend, yeah, you know, steam coming out the ears. And she said, no, they get one when they're young. We know it lasts their whole lifetime. Why would you give more? Good for her. Well, you're lucky you found They've her. They've known that for how long? Well, I wouldn't let them vaccinate my animals anyway. But the problem that right. people run into is if you want to take your pet to a traditional veterinarian, let's say you want to get a dental done or they have a laceration that needs to be repaired or whatever, you walk in, the first thing they ask, is he up to date on his vaccinations? Now, if you're standing there with an animal who has vomiting and diarrhea, who has a gaping wound, that's not the time to vaccinate them anyway. If they're no. going under anesthesia for whatever the procedure is, that is not the time to vaccinate them. So we as pet parents, because now I'm on that other side of the fence, it really stinks. <laughs> but we as pet parents really need to stick up for our animals and be willing to put our foot down and say, no, you do not get to vaccinate my animal every year. I know those vaccines last for a long time. Now, the problem is yes, legal for rabies. So that is a problem. But some veterinarians, particularly when I was in New Jersey, it's a three-year vaccine once they're adults. Well, the veterinarians decided that they would go to every two years. No rhyme or reason. They were like, well, we just don't ever want anybody to go over their three years. That's the yeah. stupidest reasoning I've ever heard. Yeah. And you will run into groomers, uh, boarding, daycare, trainers, who will not let your pet in unless you have this litany of vaccines that they insist upon. What I managed to do in the area around my practice in about a four county area, we educated all of the groomers, the boarding, the daycare, the trainers to accept titers, to understand what the difference was and to understand that once these pets had immunity to distemper and parvo and hepatitis, they pretty yes. much had it for life. for life. Now, there are some lifestyle vaccines, the lepto vaccine, the kennel cough vaccine. They don't last for life. They probably last about a year. I don't really recommend them. I would not use them in my own pets. It should be a discussion with your veterinarian about the lifestyle of your individual pet. It is not a one size fits all. I yes. see teacup Yorkies whose feet never touch the ground. They don't even go outside to pee and their veterinarian gives them DHLPP, Corona, Lyme, kennel cough. I mean, he doesn't even go anywhere. Why would he need all those things? Yeah. So it is really up to the pet parent. Uh, my first book from needles to natural has a very long vaccine chapter where it discusses every single one of the vaccines, what they're used for, how long they last and what would be the parameters where your pet might need that vaccine and where you should have a discussion with your veterinarian. For instance, there's a rattlesnake vaccine. I don't live in California. I don't have rattlesnakes. Why would I give that to my pet? Um, yeah. And that's not one that's pushed very hard, but there are a lot of other vaccines that are pushed hard. So you need to, uh, pet parents need to educate themselves as to what might be presented to them and then understand for themselves okay, that's what they're recommending, but this is what my dog's lifestyle is. My dog is not a hunting dog going out through the fields and chasing things and in the swamps. My dog lives in a high-rise apartment. Very different. Absolutely. Can you mention the name of, of your book again so pet parents can reach out for it and educate themselves? The first book that I wrote, 
2014 maybe it's called from needles to natural learning holistic pet healing it's the story of my journey from traditional medicine to alternative medicine but then it has chat it has a, a long vaccine chapter like i said there's a long chapter on parasite prevention uh both internal and external it has chapters on heart disease cancer kidney disease liver disease seizures and talks about how they're traditionally treated versus alternative methods for treatment. Um, there's a couple of food there's a couple of recipes in that book. There's a couple of food recommendations for processed food. The companies have changed a lot since 2014. So I would ignore the food companies that I talked about in there, but the rest of the information is very, very valid. And then I've got three cookbooks out. The most popular is the yin and yang nutrition for dogs, maximizing health with whole foods, not drugs. And that talks about making food for your dogs using traditional Chinese veterinary medicine food therapy. It's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. The movement towards natural healing, I mean, is gaining more and more steam. We see this. So pet parent education is critical, but you mentioned something that is so important that needs to happen so, so much more and something that you did in the counties surrounding where you were in Jersey, which is educating the pet industry people like the groomers and the boarders, et cetera, because there's so much misinformation. And unfortunately, some of that misinformation comes from conventional veterinarians. So it would be wonderful if there could be someone like you all over the country yeah. educating people I'm trying. in the industry. <laughs> Come on, Judy, let's go. <laughs> let's get on that plane. So no, yeah, I really I think it's wonderful what you did. And, and maybe you can do that, you know, carve out your piece in North Carolina and do the same thing there. I'm working on this house called veterinarian. She said she's going to open, she and her husband is also a veterinarian. Uh, they're going to open their own practice, uh, hopefully in a year. Um, and I said, you haven't seen the last of me because I'm going to bug you and you're going to be doing all this. <laughs> but she loves it. I gave her all my books and she was like, oh, this is great. Because she said the same thing. She said, okay, where I come from, we feed our dogs real food. Why do veterinarians here say that you can never feed your dog real food? So she's totally down for this. <laughs> it sounds like a match made in heaven, but why are veterinarians have a cursory education in nutrition in, in med school? So interesting. Same with, she, same she with said people in doctors. School over there, they, their nutrition courses were huge and they had to learn how to formulate diets for every species. She said she wow. worked on a chicken farm for a long time because she had to formulate chicken diets for the, you know, the laying hens, the meat brooders, whatever. So she's able to do all of that. We could never do that with our little one semester. But in this country, pet nutrition in the veterinary schools is highly subsidized by the big pet food companies there that you go. push their prescription diets. Like literally we sat in medicine class and we'd, at that point, there was really only one prescription diet company. And I will never forget in medicine class. So when you have kidney disease, you use the diet with the initials that treat that. And when you have liver disease, you use the diet with the initials that treat that. When you have heart disease, you use the one. And that was there was never anything about if you were going to make a diet for the pet or or the it was just well here's the alphabet soup use this that's how you treat 
that was yeah. our nutrition. Yeah, yeah. It's sad because who suffers are our pets and us on the human side. Yep. Okay, moving on. We are on the other side of summer, but we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to fleas and ticks. So this is kind of a two-parter question for you. What natural alternatives can you offer pet parents instead of pharmaceuticals and these pesticide-laden products that are on the market? And the second part is what can you tell them about what these kinds of products can do in the body? So I've been on this soapbox standing on my roof for quite a few years. When I wrote that first book, I was writing it in 2013 and it came out in 2014. That was right at the, actually I had to pull the book back from the publisher because that was right when the isoxazolane uh, flea and tick preventatives, the oral tablets came out. And as soon as the first one hit the market, I knew without a doubt that we were in for big, big trouble. So I actually pulled the book back. I said, wait, I got to get this in there. This has to be in that parasite chapter. I have to warn people about these chemicals. These chemicals are going to kill animals. Those chemicals have killed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pets. Uh, very severe neurologic side effects, seizures, tremors, death, uh, behavior problems, skin breaking out, liver failure, kidney failure, cancers, so many problems with these drugs. And some of them now are being combined topically with other I see these things. It's like you put three horrible chemicals, each one by itself is killing animals. And now you combined all three together. Wow. What are you trying to do here? Yes. Exactly. And when, you're, when your pet has a reaction or a side effect or dies and you report it to the pharmaceutical company, generally you'll get a form letter that says we are offering $500 and uh, that's the end of it. And you're not allowed to say anything to anybody about it. Most pet parents turn that down because by that point, many of them have spent tens of thousands of dollars trying to keep their pets alive to say that my dog, who is my child, is worth $500 and I can't tell anybody not to use your product. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Yeah. So um, I look at chemical products for my pets and I say, would I be willing to put that in or on my body? I will not even use a chemical mosquito repellent for myself. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to use the chemical tick repellents on myself. So why would I put something like that on my pet? And when you get something and you're supposed to feed that pill to your dog and it says on the package, wear gloves, do not handle, or you're supposed to apply it to your, yes. your dog or cat's back and it says, wear gloves, do not handle. Oh, but that dog or cat sleeps in bed with your two-year-old. No, no. So we need to avoid these chemicals. There are so many natural ways on my uh, website, which is drjudymorgan.com. I have a great blog. There's actually two. One is natural flea and tick, natural flea and tick prevention. And the other one that's newer is natural flea and tick prevention revisited. So you can look that up on the website uh, and it gives you about 15 different ways that you can prevent fleas and ticks or treat them if, God forbid, you actually get an infestation. Now, when I lived up in New Jersey, we had fleas, we had ticks, we had mosquitoes. I mean, we have all those things. We had hot, humid summers. I'm down here in the South. The heat and the humidity is even worse. Flea problems are worse. The tick problems, if I go in the woods, are bad. If I stay in my yard that is mown, 
not a problem. So I'm a huge fan of essential oil products. There are a lot of companies out there that have very, very nice, safe, made specifically for pets. Make sure you are finding things that are specifically made for pets. And if you have cats, make sure that it specifically says for use on cats, because the products that are safe for dogs are not always safe for cats. So to dog, cats are not small dogs. You can't, they don't metabolize things the same. So you cannot just say, oh, it's safe for my dog. It's going to be safe. Mm -mm. So my dogs are chemical free. They don't get anything in or on them that is a pesticide. Perfect. Garlic, raw garlic, another myth that you can't feed your dogs, never your cats, right. extremely toxic to cats, but that you can feed your dogs raw garlic. If you were to toss a half a dozen cloves of raw garlic every morning into your dog's meal, that would be a bad idea. But if you're giving, you know, a third of a clove once a day, or depending on the size of your dog. Yeah, it, it has it, been a great way for us to help ward off fleas and ticks. Yeah, it's really size dependent as far yes. as how much fresh garlic. But another thing that works very well is organic coconut oil that has a high lauric acid content. Uh, so when you use really high quality coconut oil, you can feed it to the pets, you can apply it topically to the pets. Great flea repellent. There's so many natural things. A lot of people use diatomaceous earth. I would caution people with that. It's great, like in the yard, that sort of thing. Be cautious if you're using it on your pets. It is going to dry the coat and you don't want them to inhale it because it's these little tiny pointy particles and it's really not very friendly to the lungs. Um, so I'm not as big a fan of using that you know, on the pets or somewhere where there's going to be a dust cloud, but it works great in the yard. Beneficial nematodes, you can buy them online for your yard. I had a client in Florida. She just could not get rid of her flea problem. She bought beneficial nematodes, threw them out in her yard. Done. Problem solved. Perfect. 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 There is so much. So check out Dr. Judy's blogs and go online and look. There are so many great tips. We are going to take a short break here from our sponsor. But when we come back, Dr. Judy is going to tell us about some of the most common illnesses, diseases that she sees in her practice, and also how to protect your senior pet. So refresh that beverage, get cozy, and we'll be right back. Sit. Stay. We'll be right back, right after we kibble a little with our sponsors. For those fortunate to have experienced the deep bond and unconditional love of a companion animal, the death that follows can be one of the most difficult and misunderstood losses to go through. Many times, this devastating loss goes unrecognized and trivialized by family and friends, leaving grieving pet parents struggling to find healthy ways to cope with the loss. In And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal for healing the loss of a pet, Dr. Julianne Corbin calls attention to the difficulties unique to the loss of a beloved pet and provides an interactive and compassionate guide to help you process your loss and work towards coming to a place of peace and healing. For those interested in journal therapy and looking for a professionally written and compassionate resource to help understand and reconcile the grief associated with the loss of your pet, this book is for you. And I Love You Still, a thoughtful guide and remembrance journal by Julianne Corbin is now available for purchase on Amazon and other major book retailers. 
Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> Welcome back. If you've just joined, we're here today with holistic veterinarian, Dr. Judy Morgan, and you're listening to Bark and Swagger on Pet Life Radio. I'm Jody Miller-Young. So, Dr. Judy, you're a holistic vet, yes, but you're also an integrative vet. You do use traditional, conventional medicine in your practice. When do you turn to traditional? You know, I find that traditional medicine is much more effective for acute problems. If your pet gets hit by a car, you're probably going to want some traditional pain medication. You're probably going to want, you know, what, whatever, you know, when we have an emergent situation, for instance, I got a new puppy. He was flown in, his owner flew him in to me the other night. And the poor little guy was so, he's 14 weeks old. We kept him with his mom until he was 14 weeks. And he was very stressed. It was, a, it was a big deal for him. He's a little tiny guy. He's five pounds. He didn't want to eat his dinner. And that was fine. Well, in the middle of the night, he started to vomit. And the eighth time he vomited in a two-hour period, it was a little tiny, you know, frothy bile. But I was like, and he was running around. But I'm like, you're a little tiny five-pound guy. You can't keep doing this. So I gave him an injection of an anti-nausea medication, a medication, not an herb. First of all, I needed to use something injectable because if I gave it oral, he was going to throw it up. So I gave him an injection. Within 15 minutes, he stopped vomiting. He went back to bed. He slept all night. And the next day he ate like a pig and he's been fine ever (laughs) since. But when we have chronic problems, these animals where the problem has been going on forever, nobody's been able to solve the problem. That's when turning to some of these alternative methods and getting the body to heal itself instead of what I find with traditional medicine is so often all we're doing is trying to put out a fire, which is why I say I use it in acute medicine. We're trying to put out a fire. We're trying to get rid of symptoms. Okay. I've got a limping dog. I can give him a drug to kill pain and make him not limp, but I still don't know what made him limp. I still need to find out what made him limp. What if I'm giving him a drug to knock out symptoms of a bone tumor? What if I'm giving him a drug to knock out symptoms of a torn ACL and he goes home and races through the yard and does more damage to that joint? So I find that once we get over that initial, like, wow, he's really painful. I'm going to give him something today. But now I need to know what caused that. And I need to figure out how's the body going to heal itself. So that's where the holistic medicine can be a lot more helpful. I, what I have found. And I don't always go directly to a to a drug, even in an acute problem, uh, diarrhea, hot diarrheas. I have an herb that works so well for hot diarrhea. Metronidazole went out the window. I, I don't Yay. like the drug. I've seen too many side effects. I've had dogs with aplastic anemia. I've had dogs with neurologic symptoms. I've had dogs that couldn't walk on that drug. If I have something that works alternatively and with diarrhea, you can give something orally. Yay. I mean, we could give it rectally if we wanted to. Most owners don't. <laughs> but if I have an herb that's going to work that well, why would I use a drug with side effects? Absolutely. Great information. Antibiotics for pets and people, probably the most prescribed type of medication, right? We've all heard about the dangers of overprescribing and what's happened because of that with all these resistant bugs. 
What can you tell my listeners about what antibiotics do in our pets' bodies and when you would prescribe them as opposed to natural? Okay. So our bodies inside and outside are covered in bugs. We all have trillions and zillions of bacteria that live in us and on us. It's called our microbiome. Our skin has a microbiome, our mouth, our tear film, our guts, it's everywhere. And it's different in different places. And we need to keep it healthy because what we want, we all have some of those bad bacteria running around in there. You you hear about Clostridium C. diff. That's a bad bug. It killed one of my family members. And the reason she died from C. diff was because she was given an antibiotic for a tooth infection. Okay, great. Cure the tooth problem. She's dead. So, you know, that is one of the side effects of antibiotics, (laughs) but we kill off the good guys and it allows those, those bad bacteria that are resistant to bloom and cause a problem. And what happens is we end up, I mean, we've been dealing with that on our farm. We got a bunch of rescue animals that were in, came in that were sick. Uh, They all responded very well to the initial antibiotic. And then three months later, we've got this resistant bug that showed up in a different animal on the farm. It's like, okay, well, how did that one squeak by? Well, we built resistance because we used, we had to use antibiotics. We had the baby donkey with pneumonia. We had to use antibiotics. Again, acute medicine is where we're going to that. But what I would tell people is just because your animal has a fever does not mean that it has a bacterial infection. Just because your animal has blood in the urine does not mean it has a bacterial urinary tract infection. If the animal is not in a crisis situation and you can have the ability to wait three to five days, ask for a culture and sensitivity. Send the urine out to the lab, send the ear swab out to the lab. Send on our horse, we had to get a swab about that long and stick it up in his sinuses and send it out to the lab. And that's how we found out which resistant bug we had and which antibiotic we needed to use so that we're using the correct one. You only want to give the antibiotics if you have to give them. You want to give it once and you want to get the right one. And there's no way to know whether you have the right one unless you have done that culture. I do a lot of consultations, I review a lot of records. And it just amazes me how many times people will take their pet into the veterinary office and they go, well, he's just not feeling right. I don't know what's going on. He's just, he's just acting a little sluggish and then take his temperature and it might be up a degree. And they just go, well, why don't we just do a trial of antibiotics? I know. What are we treating? Uh, Are we treating Lyme disease? Are we, which is a totally different antibiotic than what I would treat for an upper respiratory infection or a pneumonia or a GI? What are we treating? You have to get diagnostics done. And then when I look at the the lab work that's done on these animals and they go, oh, well, the white cell count was high. I'm like, well, okay, the white cell count will go up with stress. It will go up with cancer. It will go up with leukemias. There's a certain cell that we need to be looking for called a band cell. Well, if he's got zero band cells, then he does not have a bacterial infection. But anytime a high white cell count is seen, antibiotics get thrown on board. And unfortunately, sometimes that stops the doctor from investigating further, from looking further. It's like, oh, so uh, we have a, a different donkey that aspirated and got a pneumonia. Again, acute problem. And uh, so we got cultures done on her. She grew out all kinds of things. She's been on like nine different antibiotics in the past six weeks. It's killing me. Uh, But it's what we had to do 
to save her life. But without those cultures, we wouldn't know which antibiotics should we be using? What, where are we going with this? Um, and you end up with a lot of resistance. But her white cell count went to 117,000 one day. She was already on antibiotics. I said, well, that's just stress. And they were also nebulizing steroids. I said, that's stress and steroids. We don't need to throw another antibiotic on. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, what do you think of going to something like homeopathy to treat infection before it gets super, super carried away? and becomes life-threatening. We use herbs a lot for skin infections. If it's something localized, I'm always going to go topical. And generally I'm going to look for an essential oil or herbal preparation that I can use. I'm not a homeopath and I know that homeopathy is incredibly powerful. And especially in some of these chronic cases where they've had 65 antibiotics thrown at them over the past 10 years, yeah, we've got to find a different way to get things to, to drain. I find my food therapy can be extremely powerful for helping to cool off the body and not not feeding the bacteria that are just going crazy. It's like, oh, look, we got all these carbs to work with. We love them. Uh, so we can do a lot of things. And even if you have to use an antibiotic, using we want to use it for as short term as possible to solve the problem, but then we want to also help the body heal. So whether we're using food, herbs, homeopathy, acupuncture, chiropractic, whatever other tools we can use to help the body to heal itself so that it's not a chronic infection. These chronic ear infections, I feel so sorry for these animals that it's just antibiotic after antibiotic, nobody ever does a culture that, oh, that one didn't work. We'll go with another one. Oh, that one didn't work either. And then by the time we finally get a culture, it's like, well, it's been going on for four years. He's now deaf. His eardrum's ruptured. He's got a head tilt. He's falling over. It's like, you know, we could have solved that on day one. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, one of my students just from dietary changes alone, her dog's chronic ear infection resolved. Oh yeah. Gone. Very common. Very so, common. yeah, I mean, it's so powerful when you just know what to do, right? It's just hard for, is power. for pet parents. Yeah. Yes, it is. Because it's our babies. That's the whole goal of my platform. Education, education, education. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are the three most common diseases that you see, that you saw for all those years in your practice? Well, I'm still doing consultations. So uh, okay, I can tell you. So what are you I, seeing? It's funny because the people that arrange my consultations on the back end, Every time they send me a new one, I'm like, oh, God, another one of these allergies, 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 allergies. Those are the top three. <laughs> and after allergies, uh, we have inflammatory bowel disease, which frankly is just another allergy off on an allergy uh, yeah. most of the time. Another um, inflammatory allergy. Yeah. It's, it's just all this inflammatory stuff and cancer, tons mm. and tons of cancer. Uh, statistically right now for any dog that lives past the age of 10, 1.6 out of every two will develop cancer. Incredible. Very sad. Yeah, I know that statistic and it is mind boggling. And are you in agreement that all allergies are a lack of balance and imbalance in the body that needs to be rebalanced by having the body stimulating the body to do that? Well, allergies are really interesting because, and I just, I just did a talk on this yesterday. There's so many components to it. So there is 
definitely a genetic component for some dogs b- mm-hmm. with these big environmental allergies. And there was a great study that came out of Europe about a year ago that looked at these dogs that genetically one parent or both parents had allergies and then what those parents were fed, whether it was raw or processed food, and then what the puppies were fed, whether it was raw or processed food. For those who inherit the allergies, it's pretty impossible to make them allergy free. Diet can make a huge difference for them. Certainly the gut microbiome is absolutely huge. So a a microbiome that's out of balance, whether it's on the skin or in the gut, that's where our immune system is. It's our skin and our gut. So when that is out of balance, absolutely. And there's great tests that you can do right now uh, for the microbiome to see how out of whack they are. I can't believe some of the ones that I'm getting back. It's like, oh my gosh, how did it get this bad? And generally it's because they've had tons of antibiotics. They've had a diet that was not appropriate for that individual animal. They may have been feeding a great diet. They may have been feeding a raw diet. It just wasn't right for that animal. Steroids too. Steroids, absolutely. Well, and the allergy drugs that are used, um, Apoquel, Cytopoint. Cytopoint. So, you know, so yes, there's definitely an imbalance. And it's interesting, Dr. Dobias, when he, Peter Dobias, when he talks about allergies, he cures most of his with chiropractic. And uh, that's just energy that's out of balance. And he feels that that is a really important component for treating all allergy animals that we, we need to be adjusting them, keeping them in alignment. Some of these dogs and cats will not hold that alignment very long at all because they're just, you know, it, it muscle memory instantly pulls it back out of whack. But yes, we do need to rebalance them, whether it's with acupuncture. So from a Chinese medicine standpoint, we're looking at which meridians are out of balance. Is his liver overacting on his spleen? What's out of whack? How do we rebalance that? So whether it's with acupuncture or herbs or food or a combination, that's the kind of stuff that we use. Really interesting. Chiropractic, I never would have imagined. Yeah. I I interviewed him and and he said, this is my cure for allergies. And I kind of went, oh, okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Seniors. What tips can you offer pet parents with seniors to help mitigate what some seniors face as they get older? So I am a huge fan of seniors and we do rescue work in our house. Even our puppy is a rescue. So uh, he's from a very good breeder and he just was kind of a oopsie that didn't come out formed perfectly. So we said, oh, perfect. He fits right in here. (laughs) Uh, But we have adopted a lot of seniors and most of our dogs live to be into their late teens, 18, 19. Our cats live to their 20s. So we deal with a lot of seniors and a lot of senior issues, and some of them can be challenging for sure. What I can tell people is that start early with a high quality diet, get the inflammatory things out of the diet. So those starches, those heavy carbs, get those out of the diet early on, because that's what's contributing to inflammation in the body good supplements. So as we age and as our pets age, there are certain vitamins and um, cofactors that they don't produce as well anymore. Vitamin D is one of them. Don't just start supplementing vitamin D because too much vitamin D will put them in kidney failure. Never use a human supplement, but you can do vitamin D testing on your seniors. And I strongly recommend it at least once a year, if not twice. 
they'll usually have lower levels of zinc. And sometimes with homemade diets, we miss out on some of those trace minerals. So very important to look at those and maybe uh, use a whole food uh, vitamin supplement. There's a lot of really good ones out there now. We find uh, CoQ10. They don't make that as well. CoQ10 is so important for brain health, for heart health. Omega-3 fatty acids. Most diets are too high in omega-6s, too low in omega-3s. Our heart and our brain love omega-3s. So I recommend if, you know, if your pets can tolerate it, absolutely supplementing with a very high quality omega-3, which generally is going to be fish oil, could be white fish or salmon. Keep your pets active. So one of our seniors, uh, by the time he was, he came from a puppy mill breeding situation. We got him when he was eight. He only had five rotten teeth and the worst arthritis I'd ever seen on x-rays because he had been used as a breeding dog and he was just overused and overused and overused. So by the time he was about 16, he was pretty immobile. We got him a four wheeled cart because he was immobile with all four legs. We could hook a leash on his little cart and pull him along like a pull toy and the legs would run. And that was what kept his muscles working. For the rest of the dogs, they have ramps. Keeping them active and keeping them moving is very important because when the muscle goes, there's nothing to support them. Their bones are, are going, they're going to get arthritic, most of them. And if they have strong muscle, what most people do is go, oh, he's got arthritis. He can't walk anymore. He can't move. No, he needs to move. So swimming, physical therapy, whatever you can do for that. Keep their mind active, puzzle games, um, searching for treats hidden around the house. You know, people who say, I can't get outside with my dog in the winter. We have four feet of snow. Okay, well then find a game in the house and do some scent work with them, teach them something else. If they're food motivated at all, that's really easy. You can hide things and and play hide and go seek with them. Uh, You can set up obstacle courses in the house. And certainly for the seniors, they might have to be really simple, like a couch cushion on the floor that they have to get on or off. But all of that kind of stuff, there are a ton of really good products. Uh, We don't have any carpet in our house. So as the dogs get older, it's a slip slide for them. So there are products, uh, there are grippy boots, there are toe grips that can go on them. We also found paw friction, which is like a a pulverized rubber that actually with a surgical glue can go on the bottom of the feet, all those kinds of things to help keep them from going splat. Because when they go splat, they tear muscles and tendons and it's just painful for them. Incorporating things like massage or, you know, if they're starting to get old cold, you know, they they want to shiver and be under things, putting towels in the dryer and getting them warm and wrapping them up and then giving them a little massage treat them like you would your grandma, if you're nice to your grandma. (laughs) Great tips. Great tips. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to share with my audience? (laughs) We covered a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I I was going to say I can talk forever. But one of the things that I have found to be so rewarding by doing this alternative medicine, and particularly with the food therapy is I've had so many clients come in with their pets, whether they were obese, diabetic, had cancer, arthritis, whatever it is that we were dealing with, and we've changed their diet, we've made it healthy. And people who, I had one woman who stored purses in her oven. She's like, I don't cook, so it's storage space. <laughs> oh my God. That woman actually went out and took cooking classes to learn how to cook because she 
was so dedicated to doing the right thing for her dog. So she learned how to cook and started cooking for her and for her father who lived with her instead of eating out all the time and eating processed food. The changes I have seen in pet owners, because they are so dedicated to their pets. I had one woman, she and her husband lost 180 pounds between them. They said, if we're doing this for the dog and he's so, look, he's so healthy. Why are we not doing this? for? I didn't recognize her. I hadn't seen her in a year. She came in and I was like, I think I know you, but I really don't. And she pulled out a picture and she said, yeah, this is what my husband and I used to look like. And I went, (gasps) that is lovely. That is really lovely. It must be incredibly inspiring and very rewarding. Um, Thank you for all that you do. And thank you for sharing such incredible, incredible information, Dr. Judy. Really happy you were with us today. Oh, thank you very much. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Thank you, Mark Winter, our executive producer. You make us sound so good, and we love you for that. Please come to BarkAndSwagger.com if you want to find stories about health, pet fashion, rescue, and more. And until next time, when Fierce Fashion calls or good health, Bark and Swagger. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.